Hello and welcome to Joe's Art History Podcast, a podcast which celebrates all things art historical with me, your host and your resident art historian, Joe McLaughlin. Welcome back. It is episode 54 and the final episode of season two of Joe's Art History Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me so far throughout the season and we're going out with a bit of a bang today. My guest today is art dealer Will Jarvis and today Will and I are going to be taking a bit of a deep dive slash whistle stop tour on the history of art patronage. Now if you've been listening to the podcast for a little while you'll know that I'm completely fascinated with the history of the art market and particularly art dealers. So when Will wrote to me to suggest that we discuss the history of art patronage throughout time I thought it was a great idea and jumped on the opportunity. So this will be a two-part special where Will and I will discuss five key stages of art creation slash patronage and the rise of making art accessible. Taking you from cave paintings right through to contemporary patronage. The first half of this podcast, part one, will be released today and part two will be released shortly after. I really hope you enjoy it. It's a fantastic conversation, very sort of open in terms of structure and sharing of ideas. And I really loved recording this and listening back to it. So thank you once again to Will for being such a fabulous guest. So just sit back and relax for part one of Will Jarvis and I discussing the history of art patronage. When we previously spoke before we hit record about potentially doing this episode about the history of patronage, it's yeah. something that I'm really fascinated about because, as you know, I've got a little bit of an obsession with art dealers throughout art history mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. their role within driving the art market through. Because I think there's so many people that go, there's so many great dealers behind the scenes and people and movements and institutions that have been so completely crucial in driving art Mm -hmm. and shaping art history in the way that it looks today and I thought it was really interesting when you suggested this because I was like yes that's perfect and and it really ties in beautifully as well to to what you do with Gertrude Mm -hmm. and um, your own sort of work that you do in the art world but um when did you first start get, get interested in the whole history of patronage and the idea around the art of dealing? Well, yeah, I guess for us, when we first began the gallery, it was an artist-led project space. Mm. This is the gallery, the Sunday Painter. And as we kind of moved towards becoming a commercial gallery and representing artists and trying to deal work, essentially, we had we realized that we didn't fit the conventional mold of who an art dealer is, what background they come from, who their connections are. Um, so I did a lot of research in those early days to try and uh, understand and potentially kind of, I guess, uh, reshape myself a little bit in order to be able to play the role better. So yeah, reading um, Joseph Devine's book, um that was very kind of formative uh and very very interesting and then also leah castelli's book yeah um about his circle um so there was a few things and also even city racing city racing was a very inspirational when we first began the gallery uh as a project space um they had an amazing book that was very rough and ready and very entertaining so it was kind of in that vein and then it's just been further it's come into focus further now that we're looking at what we're doing with Gertrude, which is essentially trying to further democratize art, not the art world, but art, you know, um, and also understanding, I guess, what that means and understanding what ownership means and thinking about, I mean, something that always occurs to me is that, especially with something like art, which but part by you, burning it down intentionally it's kind of going to last beyond you or your generation it means that you're essentially just a temporary custodian of yeah. that art so that that kind of throws this notion of ownership into a different sphere um 
which is interesting and and it, even i guess recent research in i'm going to say that what heinous word that i think people are going to shudder nfts because everyone's sick of <laughs> hearing and reading about them and also a lot of the actual content or the cultural product of nfts at this stage is very very poor but the mechanics behind and around the nft and what it could mean for people um is very very interesting yeah absolutely and, and i love that idea of um custodianship and really you because you are you're a temper you are a sort of temporary owner of, mm -hmm. of art really if, mm -hmm. and it's you're just one in a long line of people that have had the pleasure of of owning something or if you're the first person to own it out of, a, of, out of an artist's studio it's that nice idea of sort of passing it on and sort of having a lineage that you have then started by supporting a contemporary artist and it, it's always kind of been that way so the, the whole point of this episode is we're going to do really like a whistle stop tour of the history of patronage of, of art and within the art world and we wanted to sort of point out a couple of things for the listeners as we went as we went along this is very much this is a humongous topic this could be a podcast <laughs> in itself and I, I definitely think you and I were very sort of bright-eyed bushy-tailed like yeah we'll just because we, <laughs> we had five points that were like yeah we'll just run through them all but they're also yeah. important and also integral pieces of the machine that helps the other one move along but mm. I think in terms of giving a brief overview of why the art world sort of ticks the way that it does or what things that have happened and changed it's really fascinating and it's something that you don't really unless you sort of move in the art world circles give it a lot of thought to in terms mm -hmm. of how works were moved around sold created how even an artwork has ended up in a museum or, or like an object has ended up in a museum and why that is considered important and within the mm -hmm. where it sits so there's so many there's so many ways we can take we can take this podcast and there's something else that you said that you you wanted to really sort of flag up is it's very much going to be based on western art history not to say that mm -hmm. there's other fabulous things going on in the world but it's just everything that was very much within reach within our sort of time frame was mm -hmm. all around western art so there's lots and lots of things that are happening all over the world while we're discussing these things as well but we're, we're going to sort of concentrate on, on western art and this is actually it's the first time I've done a podcast where I've not used images as like a, mm. as a springboard. So I'm interested to see where, where this is going to go. <laughs> so we thought really the bit, well, actually you had suggested the best place to start really was kind of the first examples of man-making art, which is prehistoric and it's cave paintings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just, before we, before we begin right here, I guess something that I think we'll find throughout this whole, you know, mm. charging through time and looking at this subject in relation to it. Something that I think will really stand out to us is realizing that patronage is participation mm -hmm. and that from the very beginning of cave art, those that supported the kind of artists and the artistry were absolutely important and really contributed something that, that, you know, nothing's in isolation. We might have fantasies and, um, kind of cliched ideas around artists operating in isolation, but they never really do. Not the stuff that kind of bubbles up and connects to us. Um, so yeah, cave art, you know, that's in a literal sense, there was, there's, there's groups, there's tribal groups, and they're essentially supporting the artistry through hunting or, or kind of foraging on behalf of the artist and enabling them to spend time kind of delving into their craft yeah I'd never I'd never even actually thought of it like that and something I said to you before we hit record is essentially when you're dealing with cave paintings it actually poses more questions than what it does mm. provide answers and yeah. it's, been, it's been really interesting to to read about the history and that there's so many examples of cave paintings particularly I think I read in National Geographic between Spain and France there's over 400 caves that they've found that have Wild. 
these in incredible paintings. So really for our UK listeners, really not too crazy far from where we are at the moment. And they're just filled with stories of these tribes. And it was obviously just what you've said there really brilliantly, they were obviously important within the tribe because they, they were left to do this task as others went out and provided. So it's, it shows that everyone had a role in society or a job, if you will, an important mm. that contributed in some way to the community. And perhaps the artists that worked in these cave paintings were mm. in themselves contributing to kind of almost like prehistoric graffiti, really. Perhaps it was a way of like marking territory or... Could be. I also think like looking at the site itself, I think that that holds some interesting uh, points, which yeah. is this, there's a spiritual dimension to a lot of the cave art. It feels like there's a spiritual dimension. It feels like in order to get in deep enough where you've got kind of a kind of sensory deprivation and you've got this old air and, you know, and lots of these works are layered on top of each other. So you've got this understanding of time probably for the first time in a kind of human mind that there's that there's this lineage dating back and you can kind of physically touch and connect with it mm. um, and also we don't really of course we don't really know the role that it played but you can imagine from looking at a lot of them that there's such a kind of powerful mysticism surrounding these works that that you know you could imagine some kind of ritualistic or kind of some kind of performance things that went in parallel to the, the creation of them or the celebration of them or the reflection of life. Um, yeah, they're really, really remarkable. And just on literal sense, it's, they were often, I think there was two types, which is there's more of the figurative drawing, drawings of animals. And then there's kind of um, abstract and geometric signs and kind of numbering and that feels like proxy language mm. but we don't we don't really we're not really equipped to really understand it because we're so from our kind of homo sapien of this era lens that it feels hard but i guess for me there were some interesting things that i thought about because the i found 32 signs across an entire continent and it's things like an ostrich a circle um cross hatch and like a or like a cross um a line like all of these basic things but actually lots of those things <laughs> are playing massive roles in our lives today like a, a crucifix or <laughs> a hashtag <laughs> like these are actually you know it, within your fingertips there's we we have a lineage dating back or a visual language that dates back so far that potentially has been with us i don't know it just kind of makes the mind boggle it really does and it's it's something that I've never really sort of stopped and really given thought to because I I had read as well that there were symbols in these caves and they seemed to think that this was a way of languages or it was signifiers that the tribes would understand mm. it was a way of, of, of recording events and things that had happened and it's just it's bizarre that it's it's art has always been a way of communicating and even, mm -hmm. in, even in its most basic stripped back form, you know, mixing minerals and water from the earth and putting it on cave walls. And even where they, you know, in the depths in which some of these caves, the, the sort of art seeps into is something in itself mm. mind boggling and mystical. And you just think, what, like, what were they doing down here? Like, what, what was it? Why, why this place? Mm. Why this cave? What, like, what are they trying what are they trying to say and it's again going back to what we said earlier there's just so many more questions than than what it gives you answers for me what it made me think about was was the the artist that made this was this a skill that was passed on was it only certain people and and the tribe yeah. that trained were the skills of how to mix minerals and in what proportion you mix minerals because really to they're all this they're black and and reds to get the same consistency, mm -hmm. they would have had some understanding of alchemy in a way to, to what proportion of water to whatever, how you grind things down. Mm. Really when you start to break it down like that, it's 
really until sort of the 19th century, how you made paint really didn't kind of progress any further until they started um, sort of providing things in tubes for you because people like Leonardo, of course, had to grind his own paints down and things like that. So it's, it, the, yeah, for me, there's, there's such a link back to everything in, in, in these caves and it's just kind of, I'm kind of lost. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, it is, it is a remarkable subject. And yeah, and as you say, the more the, this whole thing's revealed, the more you learn, the less you know. It's like, yeah. there's just vast, plateaus of our knowledge that we, we we're yet to kind of grasp but I think also there's something about Neanderthals potentially participated as well and I think that's really interesting mm -hmm. and I think I heard this remarkable fact a while ago which is that Neanderthals didn't actually become extinct we, we bred with them and that in our there's 75 percent of Neanderthal genome exists within our genome and each of us is roughly 2.5 percent Neanderthal mm -hmm. and so that when you're thinking of all of these categories of this, I think humanity has a tendency to kind of separate itself from nature and not understand that we're part of a kind of continual link or connection because we don't have these, you know, these sapient cousins mm -hmm. around anymore, but they have actually, you know, they are here, they're within us and they, you know, they were participating in this emerging kind of culture um, thousands of years ago. Um, Another thing that I found quite interesting is that there's um, there's basically trends, <laughs> but they're, they're glacially paced trends. So you'll get like um, hands, for example, were most popular between 25 and 40,000 BC, and then they fade out by the end of the last ice age. So and then there's there's different signs or forms come in and out. So I could see it as like a super delay, de delayed kind of glacial paced trend that's yeah. being passed through yeah because I think things yeah like how all of our culture kind of moves is like we're, we're passing it on constantly and it's morphing as it goes and it's kind of yeah oscillating in and out things are oscillating in and out of 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 relevancy or interest it's so fascinating but even when you were saying there about the hands I was thinking well yeah that makes complete sense because I've got nephews and mm. what my favorite thing to do is to draw around their hands like it's 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 you leaving your mark on on the earth and I suppose mm. that they're I don't know for me I find when I've seen images of, of sort of cave paintings of, of people's hands I, f I find it really playful and that they're yeah. experimenting with things and building a mural collectively even though that of course would not have been the word that, that what it was but the, mm. it's the I don't know it's also but, strangely it's strangely meta because it's like it's the hand that enables us to do it you know it's, it's the, uh, these opposable thumbs and being able to stand up is kind of what separates us and allows us all of this creative potential so it's almost like a homage to the thing that allows the thing yeah true no that's so true beautifully put actually yeah wow it's it yeah it's something that I just I feel there needs to be that there could be a whole episode on cave art in itself really mm -hmm. it's just it's just so fascinating but going back to the symbols a little bit when I when yeah. I'm reading about that that for me then completely clinked with another sort of very civilized and very very important civilization within the his within history and of course art history which was the Egyptians which is mm. of course thousands of years later but I love mm -hmm. the idea that symbols were such a huge important part of their society but I wondered in cave for for me something that as an art historian now when I speak to people that that haven't studied art history or, or people always say to me like oh I have, I have no idea about paintings I don't know about the symbolism and things like that what I find interesting is in terms of cave painting is that the tribes probably would have known what all these things meant. So it was a mm -hmm. language. It wasn't sort of kept for one group of society or like, oh no, we're the artists. We're the ones that understand all this. Everybody could engage with these works. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think also in, in you can see today in some Aboriginal cave art that a lot of it is actually super instructional. It's saying like, over there this many paces to the right at the haggard tree 
and there's your water it's kind of there are some that's super instructional i guess something that i was also chewing over is are these are these kind of forms are they kind of archetypes are they visual archetypes that are starting to kind of seed in our kind of collective consciousness you know things that 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 we have an innate connection and knowing of um because they're just yeah a half circle a, a cross a cross hatch these are things that are so simple yeah i don't know it's it's, it's kind of hard to hard to digest well, that's it. And the thing is, there, there is no right or wrong answer because really nobody knows, like coming back to it, nobody knows why these are, why these are here, what the purpose of, of them were. Yeah. But it's yeah. all just speculation. And for me, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's really, it's really blown my mind in terms of how many questions and why I've never asked these questions, why I've never actually given myself 10 minutes to sit down and really think about what these things mean and, and really how they've got there. And in terms of even mm-hmm. what you about an artist having his job and everyone else sort of going out and having their own sort of role to play in a tribe has never crossed my mind before. I just assumed everybody did the same thing, but again, sort of breaks down that everybody in a community has their own role to play and mm-hmm. help move. And that art is an important part of that community. And I think that's something that as we move through, we'll see art is always an important commodity. Art is something that connects people. And then eventually it becomes this thing which elevates people. And it's very much sort of cut out. And it's the thing that either is instructional, such as when they're in, when it's in mm. churches and cathedrals, or it tells visitors to courts that they're in the presence of someone that is incredibly important because they can afford this. Incredibly powerful propaganda mm, yeah. for the most part that's that's how it's been used even even back you know back in the cave art the era of cave art you know this potentially is the beginning of where kind of superstition yeah. you know probably starts you know within us and you know these yeah i think i think the the, the potential for it being it's it's a soft power but it's it's a significant power and it really can this is why, I mean, even you get people that go to an art fair and take a photograph of themselves in front of an artwork, and it's this kind of virtual signaling. It's like there's an associ- there's a powerful, there's a power in the association. Yeah, that's just the same as essentially, like it's like buying a work and being kind of living with it, adorned in your house, or having a, I guess, painting of you made, or you know, these are all, they're all different tones of the same act which is to kind of prop up or enforce a sense of self in a weird way or an agenda often it's an agenda because i mean the art that you keep says so much about you and and even if i think of my friends and if i visit their houses what they have Mm. on their walls i've got some friends that are massive massive gamers and all Mm. walls are limited edition prints or different things commissioned by artists that specifically deal with games or I've got people that love anime and their their houses are completely filled with mm. things of, of Japanese and, and anime influence you know it, it does tell you something and it tells you going back to the cave painting it tells you something about these things that were important enough that it was someone's job to record them be that the beasts they hunted how the tribe killed and you know hunted and gathered and even sometimes where they eventually left or why they left. Um, I don't know. Like Totally. Of- totally. Some of it was major projects as well. I think Lasco Cave, mm-hmm. these, some of these were huge projects with multiple craftspeople essentially participating. And also this idea of there's a real awareness of the cave as material itself and the, the kind of manipulation of the physical wall, the, the selecting of the right spot to kind of further bring to life the scenes that were drawn on them yeah. using the shapes and the forms to kind of emphasize certain kind of um, drawn parts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like Lascaux Cave, that was a huge, a huge um, undertaking. It's, um, yeah. yeah. It's just incredible. And some of these caves, I mean, I think one of the oldest caves is in Indonesia and it dates back sort of 60,000 years, the found. Mm-hmm 
things that date 65,000 years was, was one of the things that I read. But I read a, a really interesting thing where it talks about, where it was talking about cave art and then the shift from sort of prehistoric, obviously prehistoric and Egyptian are still in the same bracket, but when they sort of switch into a more civilized or, or understanding of what a civilized society is in terms of the Egyptians, mm -hmm. that the cave art gives people a real world view. So it's talking about, it's depicting things that are happening in real life. And then there's this switch mm -hmm. all of a sudden to an unrealistic view. If you look at people like the Egyptians, they were showing you, it was all about reminding people that the gods ruled them and that pharaohs ruled them and that they were inferior and all these things would happen to them if they don't obey the mm -hmm. rules. So it gives, mm -hmm. so there's a switch in. Well, I mean, it, in some senses, it's always been kind of, it's, manipulated by the status quo yeah that's it, you know it's to it's to kind of implement and maintain a social order that's it's often been used in that way um it's probably still being used in that way in in, in some senses I, th I think modern day there's there's certain elks of of art that are being produced that perhaps aren't and, and people are finding more and more ways to sort of celebrate their individuality and that reflects in an art that they can find which we'll get onto, but it definitely art is something throughout time that has been used to show status, to show to essentially dictate the rules, and mm. by all points, particularly the the church, strike fear into people into into behaving, and because yeah. people were illiterate, but you can everyone visually knew what these stories were because they were passed on word of mouth and they could follow yeah. stories along. And I think it's really interesting that that's what art has been used for, for centuries and centuries, is to tell stories and, and essentially dictate to people how they should and should not live their lives. Um, totally, totally. I mean, I think about, like, imagine the psyche of, like, a, a peasant that works in the field, like, all day, and they go home and they've got their tiny hut, and then they go to this church, and it's tall and thin, there's this orchestral music, there are these choir boys... There's these, you know, amazing kind of um, ornate carved decor and these incredible paintings. I mean, that's going to bowl you over. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to kind of submit to this, to this force. You're going to believe in it. It's, it might lift you up, but mm -hmm. it might also punish you. It has, it has all of that kind of transcribed in the, in the physical space. Yeah, absolutely. And like I enter some of these spaces now in the day and age of having Netflix and Instagram and all sorts of things at my fingertips, never mind. And I'm bowled over now. So I can't even imagine mm. what it must have been like for people who they lived and died by what these places dictated to them. So it's, um, mm. I think people have to remember for, you know, there's, there's a large section, essentially the Renaissance, a large section of Renaissance art is all around the church and patrons and, and things like that. But um, I, yeah, let's, I think let's move on from, from the cave paintings. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for me, again, the, the next sort of shift for me was looking, looking, as I've said a few times, at the Egyptians. And that really was a lovely sort of link for me into... Mm -hmm the sort of real world view and then into the unrealistic view. And um, there were so many, like they really got creative. It moved on from, from paintings, people started carving, people started using ceramics. And this is something that I really found interesting. The materials that people used as mm. the sort of prehistoric uh, and sort of moved into medieval, are materials that we still use today and particularly precious materials like lapis lazuli, like the Egyptians, this was a really mm. positive material because it had heavenly associations. It was something that they, um, it was very scarce. It was, it was very expensive to get hold of. And it was, and it's exactly the same today. Something like lapis lazuli hmm. is, is a material that is still like, oh, it's very sort of, it's got very historic and important symbolism behind it as well. So mm. Really what the researching for this has showed me is art has come on in so many ways and yet it hasn't really because we're yeah. using the same things. I mean, I had a really lovely time just sort of looking through, particularly the British Museum, looking at some of the, some of the things that, you know, they've got beautiful sort of 
carved wood altar pieces and figurines and then they've got bone they've, they've got ceramics and things like that it's um iron gold silver um mm. yeah it's it's incredible and again but these these things were not commissioned but and then these were made by craftspeople because this is something I'd never really thought about before who made all the art in places like this they had places where people were trained up to be craftsmen and it wasn't as if you had a head craftsman but what I read was in the time of the Egyptians for example you it didn't matter who the artist was everybody worked as a collective everybody worked regardless of sort of skill and ability everybody worked together because the collective it wasn't about one person's ability to create something beautiful it was about the collective passing on a message and making sure that realistically a pharaoh was ready for the afterlife and yeah serving yeah. as a purpose so that for yeah me it's much yeah that is quite fascinating it's much more kind of definitive it's the default but that feels like um that's like life under a um a dictator as yeah. well it's like you know and that's what you have today like our art and artists are some of the first people to be censored because they have the potential to kind of rally and to draw out emotion and to inspire um and so therefore often it's you know dictatorships that need to kind of take control of this and to control the message control um what's communicated um but yeah it's kind of it is fascinating to see I guess, a relatively cohesive narrative coming from the past. Mm -hmm. And I guess in another way, what we value in contemporary artists today is the opposite of that. We value that. We value independent thought, independent kind of pursuit within their, the artist's practice. But in a weird way, that's just mirroring the ism of the day, which is where this is liberal humanism that we celebrate every individual has the right to pursue their own happiness and that when we enshrine those rights and so in a weird way the artist is just a reflection of our culture today as they were a reflection of the egyptian culture back in the day yeah yeah absolutely the the, the point is really that art is, is still an important aspect running throughout these communities and it's something that you could get involved with and mm. if you wanted to you can go into a workshop and, and train and that's something that again continue even to this day it doesn't matter where you come from you can you mm. can go to art school and you can train and you can leave your, your mark in some way it's yeah it's it's so funny how we've not really it's not hugely different <laughs> no it's not the systems the system's the same like yeah um which i'm I'm finding so, so interesting. We'll leave the Egyptians behind and we'll talk about, realistically, I think the biggest patrons and the people that really have had the biggest input in shaping the art world in sort of medieval and Renaissance times, and that is courts, kings, and what we've kind of chimed as the, the art of praise. So for people listening, what is the art of praise essentially who who are these people i don't know if i'm well versed enough i was just going to say that um that i think with with the renaissance we start to see the beginning of of uh class and social systems and this emerging middle class uh mm. who are merchants and their ability to quite adeptly use um use art as leverage um not only was it a way of creating their own pr but also like patronizing on behalf of a certain religious order will, will push you up the rankings socially yeah. um so that's quite an interesting thing but yeah i mean how would you summarize i don't know how i would summarize how would you summarize the uh the art of praise or art of praise i would i would just say it's it's the leaders and very much like you said, the merchant classes, people that essentially had wealth. And mm. really, this is the first time for me anyway, that I can see art being used as a thing that dictates and causes fear and is something that is only allowed to the select few that have the means to create it. 
and engage with it because things like museums and an art market, if you will, in the way that we know it, didn't really exist. Mm -hmm. So people, really the only people that had the means to consume and commission were those of great wealth. So, and, and of course that's the church. And, you know, the most, you know, people sort of lived and died by the church, as we've said previously. So it made complete, and this is where all their money and taxes used to go to. So it makes sense that for so many hundreds of years, the vast majority of things in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, it's all based around religious stories, biblical stories, mm -hmm. biblical teachings, parables, important patrons, saints. And really, it's kind of the first time that I can remember seeing people that you know, people that commission these things, patrons, someone who who goes to an artist and pays, can also, it's kind of like they can buy their way into heaven. This is kind yeah, of- Yeah, yeah. They can buy that, they can buy access. Yeah. They, they can buy a position. I mean, it, it, it's also interesting. It feels like there's the cousin of art is craft and that they're kind, they're intrinsically linked, but one is, I mean, even today, like one is looked up to and one is kind of, frowned upon um yeah. but they're kind of the same thing and they are you know they reinforce each other but it's art has become and you know was back then this um this aspiratory thing this powerful tool sometimes a weapon sometimes a, a something that could seduce um that was kind of wielded by by individuals with agendas yeah and I think that's a great way to put it, individuals with agendas, because that's exactly that's exactly what it was. And I think for a lot of people, they don't really realise it. When you think of, when someone says to me, a court artist, when I was a student, mm. someone's like, oh, you know, if they're in a court of a king or a wealthy sort of merchant family in Florence, very important artist. And I was, you kind of think, I don't really think I know anybody, but actually anybody mm. who is of note was was a court painter so for example Michelangelo was a court painter and someone like Leonardo mm -hmm. da Vinci was a court painter as well so these huge big names that really we only we know their works because they were commissioned by the best families going but this is what I find really interesting about sort of the renaissance sort of medieval art particularly the renaissance in sort of Italy, so Florence, Florence and, and Milan, is mm -hmm. when people were when people commissioned artists. So just take it back a little bit. So today, somebody like Damien Hirst, people will sort of ruffle their feathers and say, "Oh, he's got a studio full of artists like this, like, and he just has the idea, and everybody else executes it. It's not art. It's he's he can't call himself an artist, but that's exactly what these people did. It like there was no art dealers, patrons would go to, to artists. Or for example, if a wealthy patron visited the court of a king and saw that somebody, some artist in the region had painted a, a, a portrait of the king, they would then find the name and as a way of showing their loyalty would find that artist and then commission a copy mm. to happen as a way of sort of buying favor and, and letting people know that you are a loyal supporter of what's going on, of, of your ruler and what's happening in your community. But artists back then also had humongous studios and they would sit down with their patron one-on-one -on -one and say, okay, well, I will paint 25%, 30%. I will paint the, the face and the hands and I'll maybe do a bit of the robes and then everything else my, my studio assistants would do. And they would sign a contract and say, okay, great, have it completed by that date. And that's what they would do. So it's, mm. I read a really fabulous book. It's called, um, I think it's The Art of 15th, The Art in 15th Century uh, Italy. And it's this tiny, tiny little book. It's maybe like 95 pages long. And it's yeah. like, it details how artists went about Procuring, uh, procuring contracts with with clients and or pay, what we call interesting them, and and it's it's such a fascinating history because again 
it's not really moved on from 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 what it does today it, I mean, it sounds to be honest it sounds more organized yeah <laughs> it sounds a lot more professional <laughs> if you ask me uh, I like I the idea of yeah, artists think... producing work on time that'd be great yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> but I think another interesting thing that popped up to me is this idea that like we've actually you know you can take that criticism to a big named artist like Damien Hurst and say you know they don't touch the work da 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 da, da. Um, and then you can cite these you know these these great masters who essentially did the same but actually contemporary artists artists today at least they are they have their own ideas so these yeah. other artists that that might be looked up to and held in high regard because of their physical talent at painting or whatever you know ultimately they weren't these ideas were these were given to the not that the ideas were given to them but the subject was given to them that the parameters for them to kind of really operate and yeah. and communicate and kind of um discuss things was hugely limited by yeah. the subject matter because they're essentially fulfilling the agenda of another person um whereas today you know that is something that we really value uh the fact that artists are having these ideas and pursuing them and that's you know it, it, there's you get there's a lot of welfare in in terms of ideas because it's we can appreciate all the way from the material and how it's been kind of used or the materials have been executed or created all the way up to kind of their conceptual placing and so there's a whole range of of areas that we can weave in and out of and different tones that can become different tones and different combinations that can become really kind of intoxicating to us whereas actually a lot of the art through the ages has has yeah has functioned as a backdrop to kind of quite dictatorial terms put on by whichever person can pay the bill no and you're, you're completely right and some of the best works of art in the world you know like um da vinci's last supper in, in milan that was mm. commissioned. He was told, this is what I want you to paint. He didn't just turn up and think, oh, do you know what a fancy painting? You're completely right. And it's a really, really important point. People were completely limited because patronage was so important and these materials were so expensive and people didn't have the freedom and access to things that, that we do today. You know, if you want to paint something, you can pop to a shop like Tiger and, and pick up a little set of paints and brushes for two or three pounds it wasn't that case all those years ago you know there had to be it was meticulous training rounds that you could go through and it was it was expensive to, to yeah. bill for these things but ultimately why these things were being commissioned was to one show power and buy favor and show that I am holier than thou there's um when I was at university I did I had, I had a, a seminar group that was looking at um, manuscripts, particularly um, sort of privately commissioned Bibles for, mm -hmm. um, for people that traveled. So wives of merchants who would travel around the country, they would commission these, these portable Bibles that were beautifully illustrated. And the whole point, wow. essentially, the more illustrated it was, the more it showed your wealth when you, when you stopped over the night somewhere and when, when you prayed, but it also showed essentially the more elaborate things were the more devoted it showed that you were but that that's quite ironic because obviously the bible at the time was also you know the religious yeah the the, the, the dominant religions at the time were also saying it's easier for a rich man to get it's easier for a, for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven because yeah. they had <laughs> because they didn't christians weren't allowed to lend or lend money essentially so there is this strange hypocrisy in this material regalia and pomp and buying your way in but also it also being kind of weirdly frowned upon by the church so it's kind of kind of strange i guess the catholic church was was a major um kind of um consumer producer of material wealth um what was i going to say i was going to say we were talking a little bit earlier about goya and talking about artists having significant limitations on what they actually produce and I wonder how many artists actually produce work they wanted to produce that just is, didn't become famous or wasn't collected or I mean sketchbooks I mean da Vinci sketchbooks are 
I spoke about this with someone else on a different podcast, actually, because um, and the, the podcast for anyone listening is called um, Is Drawing Important? And we spoke about certain artists that really believe that the crux of being a good painter and being able to, to push the medium forward is to really understand the basics and master mm. painting, realistic uh, painting and drawing, and then move it forward. And one of the examples we used was one of Da Vinci's sketchbooks, which was one of the pages was completely full of cat drawings. And there were just wow. sketches of cats um, that he used to just let into his house. And they, they're fabulous and they're so playful. And I think maybe that's where an artist would have had time to- More freedom. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's kind of like anything really like, where would you have the freedom to to explore and express yourself and sort of push your style and your te technique any artist that i know it's their sketchbooks or they have a whole series mm. of drawings that are hidden away at the bottom of a drawer and they're like oh no 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 that's just playing like don't don't look at that because i think that <laughs> i think that's just intrinsic of being an artist like you have to like you have to create there's no some days you wake up and you'll be like no i can't be bothered doing anything to do but there's Every artist that yeah, there's I know, a need, there's a need. That's it. It's an, it's an urge. You have, to yeah. you have to scratch it. So, and I can't see artists ever not being like that. Um, I mean, we could be completely wrong. Maybe the only time you were ever able. I mean, these you know, paper was so expensive and and canvases and things like that. But you know, this is. I mean, I suppose a whole lot of Renaissance incredible paintings were were painted on wood, actually. So panels. Mm stuff like that as well so there's lots of different materials I'm, I'm assuming people could have played with and they wouldn't have been sketchbooks I suppose necessarily in the way that, that we knew them but surely there's got to be scrap bits of paper and scrap bits of, bits of parchment that they could have um, sort of doodled on if you will and yeah yeah but it would be it'd be interesting to know like how because it's, it's part of your development <clears throat> it's part of your development as an artist to, to do all these things but again so many questions well so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> so little time terrible uh, um a little note that i just found here that i'd written about um patrons as influencers uh -huh. um which is that essentially as we spoke about earlier in, ter in terms of who has who's dictating what they were in the position to kind of set fashions and style and subject matter and um, also they did things like importing artists and artworks from distant lands to show up how kind of sophisticated they were and yeah. how they've traveled. And uh, it's interesting, yeah, all these things that were quite egoic reflections of self um, that art ends up being. Um, no, absolutely. And um, that brings me on to an example that I know. So Philip Bind of Spain, who was sort of around in the 1600s, Charles the first went to visit him essentially I think he was going to marry he was going to marry so Charles the first of England was potentially going to marry one of his daughters and yeah. that didn't work out but when he went to visit um Philip he was so enamored by the fact that he had a court painter his court painter was Villainquiz and mm -hmm. wow he had this incredible collection that when Charles came back and said oh we've actually got hardly anything in the British Royal Collection he then made it his mission wow to, to, and he was he was so flamboyant in his spending which is one of the reasons he was in a lot of trouble with Parliament and essentially <laughs> eventually led to his beheading um he then that's, co that's commitment for you yeah well that's it like he's willing to die to like build the collection <laughs> um that he he became so obsessed with trying to beat Philip the uh, Philip the fourth in Spain that it just became this obsession to like build wow. the British collection because he was so obsessed by it. And I think it's he's a really good example of someone that just loved collecting things, like it gave him a real buzz. And it wasn't necessarily to, well, it was to show that he, he was sophisticated and that he had style and that he was somebody to be, uh, you know, looked up to in terms of his taste and his class, because he was, he was very, very flamboyant and, and what he wore as well. But, in terms of building a collection that he could enjoy and, and like spew across the palaces and he I think he was he, he commissioned the most self-portraits of himself something like that anyway wow and <laughs> he had he had I think it's a really famous Van Dyke painting that he like you're talking about 
um, working with artists abroad as well. He really loved, because Philip had said, oh, we've got some of the best sculptors that are in Rome. He'd commissioned this um, It's a very famous three side portrait. So it's, um, it's a portrait of the king, but you see him from his left side, front face full on, and then to the right side. Wow. And it's a beautiful, beautiful portrait. It's, it's actually, I think the copy is in Windsor Castle. The copy's in the Royal Collection. I think either a copy or maybe the original is at Windsor Castle. And he sent this, this incredible painting to Rome, just so the person that he had commissioned to make a bust of him um, <laughs> which would have the best representation with, of, of what he looked like without him physically having to travel there. So to use the, the to use painting, and, and then essentially after he was done, he was like, oh, you can just shuck the portrait if you want. We don't, we don't need it back. Well, that's, that's true decadence, isn't it? Isn't it? Well, that, well, no wonder he got beheaded. He was, uh, he loved that. He <laughs> listen to anybody else. But it's just, um, it's just so interesting how there's a switch all of a sudden from the art of commissioning religion and then sort of religious subjects and trying to buy your way in and then it became this status symbol it's that you know your, your art collection was a way of telling people around you that you were you were incredibly wealthy not only that you're wealthy but you had good taste and this is where yeah. for me it gets really interesting i was just going to say it, it's also quite interesting thinking that actually obviously before photographs this, these were the only ways to really kind of communicate what someone looks like before meeting them in advance so obviously there's so many cases so many stories of people having beautiful portraits painted of them and then perhaps they don't quite look <laughs> like like the image but um yeah Hans Holbein and uh Henry the Henry the eighth's uh fourth yeah. wife Catherine of Cleves very famously yeah um supposed to be this beauty in Hans Holbein kind of went out and thought oh gosh uh, I'll spruce it up a bit kind of really essentially the first sort of photoshopping of the day yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um it's just so interesting but even portraiture in terms of spreading messages I used to volunteer at um, a national trust property in Glasgow and it funnily enough it's got a really great Spanish art collection and at the top of one of the staircases in the house was a portrait of a baby sort of wrapped up. And mm. I said to one of the volunteers on one of my first days, I was like, oh, can you tell me about this painting? And they said, um, so have a look at the baby and what, what can you tell? What can, can you tell me anything about it? And I said, well, you know, it's really sort of decadent. It's, you know, it's wrapped in this very sort of de decadent um, blanket. It's got all these, you know, beautiful headdresses. Um, yeah, so it's a royal baby. And mm. what it was actually painted for was the queen had given birth, but the baby was a stillborn. Wow. And this was commissioned because the king was off fighting somewhere and it was commissioned as proof that she had given birth. Wow. The baby was dead. And that's what they used, they used to do that with kings and portraits as well. So people obviously, not everybody could get to um, to meet the king or see the king in the way that we do today because of photography and the how easily we can access information and what they used to do was commission a royal portrait and then it would tour the towns so people would know what their king looked like so it was a really important piece wow. of propaganda and making people feel like oh this is what a king looks like so it was really important that when people did commission these things that they were seen in their their best gear their sort of Sunday best if you will and yeah it's just there's portraiture is so interesting and in, in how it was used as, as propaganda and getting people on side and also how yeah they, they even bad news to each other is I mean it, it's just that was just making me think of the death death mask and then that in turn thinking yes. about memento memento mori mm. it's like no wonder that there's a whole kind of vein macabre vein in art that's about all these kind of fleeting and the kind of, I guess, mementos of, of, of death or the, or the dead, the recently deceased. Um, and I guess that's always been, yeah, it's, I guess art's always been kind of considering mortality, hasn't it? From the cave paintings, going back to this consciousness of time passing yeah. and then all the way to kind of paying such a prominent role in communicating lives, marriages, deaths. Yeah. But also, it's, you know, you you can come from whatever background, you can be rich, poor, you know, born in England, born on the other side of the world, whatever. But there's two events that will 
that everyone goes through and that's birth and death everybody yeah. can't escape yeah so it's so important that and like you said there's that whole memento mori macabre aspect of art history where they really did love reminding you that you were going to die one day and yeah it's it's an interesting tool. well that was part of why it was so so powerful at all wasn't it really that like if you can kind of present this terrifying image of where you might end up if you don't follow follow the rules it can really kind of keep people in, in line but what's interesting is again these works would have been commissioned by a patron not necessarily the church perhaps a private mm. patron perhaps um a royal household somebody of great wealth and yeah there, there seems to like particularly moving through sort of 16th 17th century there's there seems to be like a a diversification in terms of subject matter it's not solely religious subjects anymore it's battle scenes mm. it's beautiful bouquets it's still life it's hunt scenes it's all these different things that kind of show off a person's interests and talents and I don't know curiosities if you will and, and then that whole idea of cabinets of curiosities as well that um way of collecting weird and wonderful objects from all over the world and showing them off to your friends in this sort of strange little cabinet mm. in your house as somebody who was really traveled and interesting and yeah that we've always been interested in, in art and trinkets and trying to I don't know express ourselves in some way yeah snippets of snippets of culture be they yours or someone else's there's they're kind of encoded with a potency that 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 is always interesting to us I think Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I feel we've kind of gone off on, on a wee tangent, which has been lovely, but let's, yeah. to, let's go back to sort of, so we've, we've kind of talked about sort of patronage in terms of the, the church and how people, you know, sort of whistle stop to kind of, we used it to buy favour, to show their loyalty and support. And then we've kind of touched on when did artists start to get a little bit of freedom in their expression? And again, that really didn't happen until about the 19th century. And again, mm. until that point, artists kind of worked in, when they were commissioned for different things, they were worked in studios. So you, you, you see a lot of things in the National Gallery will be studio of Rubens or um, commissioned or like after Van Dyke, you know, so they can't, they don't, there's like, a weird thing with provenance and people trying to sort of pinpoint mm -hmm. what artist or what studio painted what and for what reason but there seemed to be like a essentially sort of 17th 18th century there was a an increase in terms of merchant classes so travel opened up people could sail people were sort of importing exporting goods and it allowed people to very much rise through the ranks of society very rapidly and obtain all these all these wealth. And this is essentially where cabinets of curiosity came from. People started, you know, commissioning artists to to paint memento mores and show hunting scenes, all sorts of things like that. So really that's kind of drawing all that back in. This is this is when people start to wealth kind of diversifies ever so slightly and they're seen as new wealth which aristocracy old money really really hated because there were these people that essentially you know 20 years before were hmm. you know had hardly any money to like lace their boots up and now they're commissioning beautiful big country mansions to to be built and all sorts of things and filling it with like beautiful ornate things and in terms of you know travel opening up this is where in um, Orientalism really came in and started like affecting and influencing what was happening in Britain. So there's all sorts of different information now, sort of moving in and out of Britain, influencing the art scene, influencing how people um, live and work. And yeah, yeah, it's just it's a really exciting time. But what I what I find really interesting in terms of looking at things in century wise, so like 17th mm -hmm. century, you can look at things that you can really sort of in a nice bowl say that's the Baroque period. And then when you move to the 18th century, you have things like Rococo and neoclassicism, that's, you can tie that up in another bow. And then when you move into the 19th and 20th century, when people, when artists get a bit more freedom and start creating art 
without necessarily having a buyer there to back it. It's the start mm. of all these amazing movements that start sort of spinning off and, and happening. And it kind of brings back to what you said earlier about contemporary artists and how they're not restricted by ideas and how people until this point really were because they were they were kind of in a confined bound by this by this systemic yeah. structure that's that's employing them. Yeah, I guess I guess right up to today where actually I feel like because of the internet, because of technology, everything's so everything's disseminated so rapidly that there there's no room for an ism. It's already mm. shared. Yeah. <laughs> so it can't it's like what I was saying about the um yeah there being trends within the cave painting that take thousands of years it's like we're the polar opposite end of that in terms of scale where you know as soon as something's kind of yeah yeah created and shared it's it's kind of reduced and there you have it that is part one of the history of art patronage with myself and will jarvis from gertrude please do stick around part two is coming up right this second if you'd like to get in touch in the meantime about anything that you've heard today, please feel free. You can email me, joesarthistory at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram at joesarthistory. Will's Instagram and email address and link to Gertrude is also in the show notes below. So please make sure that you check that out as well. Part two coming right now.